think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 118 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 119th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Etienne Rainbow. And this week we have a very special guest, and I, I will preface this by saying that if you're a fan of the show and you ask us to come on the show, odds are we will not respond. <laughs> However, uh, we do have a fan of the show this week who reached out and asked to be on, and uh, it was an offer, as, we, as they say, that we could not refuse. And I'd like to welcome to the program this week, Aaron O'Toole, leader of Canada's official opposition. It's great to be here. Now, you wouldn't come unless I agreed to host this at Stornoway. So you're in an official residence to broadcast this uh, great podcast. So welcome to one of the country's uh, special little homes. We've met Wexford. We're having uh, a few Vimy. This is really the the full experience. Yeah, we're we're living the dream, as they say. So, Etienne, I think you had a question about the furniture you wanted to ask, first of all. Well, this was my my wife put me up to this um, (laughs) on, on the way over. Her question was, do you redecorate between, you know, owners? Is this your furniture? How, how's, how does the furniture side of this work? Well, this is my first furniture question, um, <laughs> but it's an interesting one. Um, this is the people's house. So we're in one of the state rooms. So all this lovely artwork is all Canadian artists. I've tried to just make sure the National Capital Commission has a mixture of all provinces and some indigenous. All of the stuff on the main floor is is kind of like federal state property entertaining exactly uh, most people bring no furniture here Rebecca and I wanted the kids to have their own rooms with their own desks and furniture they were used to plus it's hurricane Juan Oak so her, their grandfather from Nova Scotia made the kids rooms of furniture yeah. with oak that was uh, that was available after the hurricane Juan in, in Nova Scotia years ago so uh, we brought that to keep a blend of what the kids knew before here and, um, and, uh, and a mixture of this special opportunity that we have. This was the house that provided refuge to the Dutch royal family during, during the Nazi occupation. It's why there's a tulip festival in, in, uh, in Ottawa. There was a, a Dutch princess born in Ottawa. So the, I love the military and the sort of history of, of this home, but it's a real honor for a regular suburban family like ours to to have this chance and the more we can keep it normal for the kids so upstairs bedroom furniture the same but this is uh canada's furniture but still don't please don't mess it up (laughs) (laughs) we will keep that in mind uh yeah so i mean we we obviously have a a lot of things we'd like to ask you about um i think uh, etienne wanted to start off with just a little bit about uh kind of your journey into politics and uh, especially, you know, obviously this podcast is kind of about the the not seedy underbelly, just the normal <laughs> underbelly, very respectable underbelly of politics, of staffing, and just a little bit into your philosophy there. And uh, I'll let Etienne sort of kick off in that direction. Yeah, I'd say on, on the second half, we can, we can touch on some of the more current events. Um, but in the first half, I'm hoping to <clears throat> not be boring, but still go through sort of some of the, the history here. Um, as well as some of your sort of personal philosophies and, you know, your leadership style, um, how you've brought together your team, how you've got to where you are today. Um, so with that, I'd say let's, you know, do quick history. You were elected initially in a by-election. Um, by-elections notoriously weird um, for having a typical uh, voter turnout, all different results. How was that? 
Well, first off, I'm a little worried you're writing the history of Aaron O'Toole. <laughs> Let's call this the, the, the authorized biography uh, review yeah. of where we've been. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I was elected in a by-election in November of 2012. Uh, the previous MP, Bevoda, had resigned. Um, it was a surprise to me. It's my hometown where I grew up. Obviously, I moved away in the military and my, my law school and all that sort of stuff, but... Uh, she resigned sort of suddenly, and my wife and I and all my friends, we kind of talked about getting in. And it was kind of neat being in the only election happening in Ontario at the time. Most people, I'd knock on their door, and they'd have no idea there was a by-election. <laughs> what are you right. doing here? Yes. <laughs> and so voter turnout at by-elections is notoriously bad. And identifying your vote and getting it out, just like a normal election, but that's even more important because sometimes by-elections can be used by the opposition parties to send a signal to to uh, to the governing party. And Stephen Harper was prime minister. He'd won in 2011, but then it'd been about a year and a half into the majority. And uh, Tom Mulcair, a new NDP leader at the time, came to my, my riding Durham a couple of times to try and help the NDP candidate. Um, the, the NDP recruited a former provincial MPP uh, and he might have even been a minister under Bob Ray to run. He had represented provincially part of my riding. So they kind of put in a bit of a star NDP. And um, at that point, the NDP had come second in a lot of those ridings after uh, after Jack Layton's success. So it was a weird by-election in that um, Justin Trudeau wasn't yet the liberal leader. Bob Ray was the intern and he was sending in some uh, some nasty 10 percenters and things like this. So all, <laughs> all the other parties did try and, and focus on it, but um, I was very fortunate that the strong record of the Conservative government was a good thing to run on. My father had been the MPP of that riding for, uh, by that point, like 17 years. So the O'Toole name was well-known locally in my community. And then when I won... We had the brief distinction of being the first father and son to represent the same community at the same time at two levels of government in mm -hmm. Canadian history, since equaled by Shelby Cramp Newman, our new MP from Hastings, and whose father is Daryl Cramp. Daryl Cramp. Yeah. So on the SECU committee once upon a time. That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> so the by-election is <clears throat> was a great opportunity for me to to learn, you know. How to be a candidate. I've done a lot of door knocking and volunteering. I've been a grassroots conservative for many years. And here's one of my best political memories ever. And uh, I've told a few people this because I've been asked, what's one of your most special memories? By-election winners get escorted into the House and have to ask the Speaker to take their seat. It's very unique. You don't just show up like we'll be doing on Monday. Everybody just showing up to their seat. You have to ask the Speaker to take your seat. And in my case, I had Stephen Harper, the Prime Minister of Canada, and the late Jim Flaherty, who was a friend and a bit of a friend to both my father and myself and a bit of a political mentor. And my, my dad was in the gallery. My dad had been Jim Flaherty's parliamentary assistant at Queen's Park. Hmm. My, one, my, my son Jack was one year old. He threw up in the gallery. <laughs> we'll, all, we'll tell that story at his wedding. And so to go in with Stephen Harper, a great prime minister, Jim Flaherty, I think the best finance minister we've had in decades. What, and then my family connection to Jim. It was really, really special. 
And then my family was quite disappointed because I took my seat, but it was on the opposition rump side back by the curtain, so they couldn't actually see me <laughs> from the gallery. <laughs> but there's no bad seat in the House of Commons. I was just so honored to be there. Awesome. Yeah, that's uh, and so you came in at that point, and then you, uh, fast forwarding a little bit, uh, were appointed Minister of Veterans Affairs. I don't remember the exact timing. Uh, I'm sure you remember better than I do. <laughs> well, there was a stepping stone, I like to say. Just like the military, I worked my way up the ranks. My, my first seat was literally by the back curtain. You couldn't be The, the overflow seating from the yeah, government. Yeah. I was sitting behind the NDP, kind of, uh, in, that, in the rump. And um, about nine months later or so, nine or ten months, Harper did his you know, pre-election shuffle when Chris Alexander went into cabinet, Michelle Rempel, Pierre Polyev, and I kind of said, man, I've, that's, that was the window for a shuffle. I just haven't been here long enough. But I became a parliamentary secretary, which is, you guys have talked about these roles that not a lot of people understand them, but they're critical. You move the ball down the field. You, you're there uh, to stand up for the minister and represent the government. And I was international trade at a time we had the European trade agreement. Yeah. We had uh, trade agreements with Honduras, a whole range of bilaterals. We had uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So what an amazing time. And I had done trade as a lawyer in the private sector. And at FAST, my minister was uh, was going to Europe all the time to finalize things. So my joke was I'd be in the house and if there was any travel involved, Ed, Fra- Ed Fast would go to Paris, France. I would go to Paris, Ontario <laughs> and get yelled at by, by uh, dairy, dairy farmers. farmers. Yeah. For, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've been there. Um, ha- haven't we all in a way, really? Uh, but yeah, so actually, yeah, if you want to tell us a little bit about being a parliamentary secretary, uh, you would have come in I've, as a relative newcomer to the house um, and then you would have taken on these duties. And so what did that look like for you, uh, sort of on a, a kind of week-to-week basis? Like, well, what did that, apart from going to Paris, Ontario, to be all up at Dairy Farms? I, guess, what, I never did go of... to Paris, but, <laughs> but, but that made for a good example it of does. what the life of a Parlsec is. I don't think anyone will regret you that one. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, as you know, Parlsecs sit on Fridays for their minister, or if their minister's gone. And because Ed was traveling a lot, because uh, we had not just European deal, but Trans-Pacific Partnership, as I said, we had probably the most ambitious trade agenda uh, in the history of, of, of Canada, given the timing. And so I was up a lot in the House. You run committee, or at least at that point, the parliamentary secretary would be kind of the government lead on the committee to mm-hmm. advance things through. So we would hear from, you know, uh, labor groups, farming groups, all of them that all the groups that could be impacted by by trade. Um, we also did stakeholder engagement and. Um, you know, Ed, the minister would generally high, handle the highest level stakeholders, but we wanted to make sure everyone had a voice. So some of them would be with the parliamentary secretary. That was at the time too, um, because Michelle Rempel and Pierre and uh, Chris Alexander at the time, those people went into cabinet. I started getting more time to appear on uh, panel shows and and be the government sort of spokesperson, not just on trade, but on a whole range of things. And uh, that was a great way to cut your teeth with media, with stakeholders. Parliamentary secretary is a is a not well understood, but a highly valued position in my view. Yeah, a lot of people aren't familiar with the role at all, and I see a lot of uh, question questioning looks when I once upon a time when I was in consulting government relations. Um, when I would talk about the importance of going in and having the conversations with parliamentary secretaries because, you know, average MPs are great, but they talk to their minister 
or they talk to the, the relevant minister, much less than the parliamentary secretary, who has that relationship into the minister and the minister's office and are sort of critical interlocutors um, when the minister is, as you said, traveling internationally. Yeah, and committee. Like So a lot of stakeholder groups will appear before the, the trade committee, for example, or industry or whatever it is. And you're going to be interfacing generally with the parliamentary secretary and um, members of the committee. The minister doesn't sit at the committee, right? And so for stakeholders, it, it, it's an important role. Um, as you said, not well understood, but uh, I think a very important one. And I, I found it a great learning experience to be, to be prepared to become minister down mm-hmm. the road. Um, so I, I spent about a year and a bit in that role. Then I was appointed to cabinet. So I have this unique distinction of being the last cabinet appointment of, of Stephen Harper. Um, and uh, yeah, will be the last cabinet appointment became the next conservative prime minister. There's a nice continuity <laughs> to that. So, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so I, I remember that appointment. That's while I was working um, on the Hill. You went into Veterans Affairs um, at a time where I think it's safe to say there were there were challenges in that portfolio. Um, how was it going to, to VAC at that time? Well, the great thing, I have to really compliment Stephen Harper. You know, when he, he gave me the appointment just before Christmas, and then I wasn't sworn in until the beginning of the new year. And I uh, said, this is your first cabinet confidence test. I don't want this to leak. And it didn't leak, you know. <laughs> um, uh, but people, when I was showing up at Rideau Hall weeks later, uh, uh, it was kind of exciting. But we had a meeting and I asked him for a bit of a mandate to run because I was the first veteran to become the Veterans Affairs Minister, kind of in a generation. And post-Afghanistan, the gaps in the service of Veterans Affairs were exposed. Uh, our... Everyone that works at VAC loves our veteran, but every time there's been a major conflict, the the department is set up based on the previous generation. So Veterans Mm -hmm. Affairs was still kind of set up for the World War II Korea generation and hadn't modernized on mental health, on faster treatment, on digital services through an online account, all those sorts of things. So I tried to accelerate that. And what I said to Prime Minister Harper was, I want a bit of a mandate. I want to settle this class action lawsuit launched by veterans that I thought, quite frankly, justice had screwed up royally. I wanted a mandate to do that. I wanted a mandate to expand uh, mental health treatment, something that's very important to me personally. And then three, I wanted to really tackle the growing backlog of cases because I do think we rebalanced with DRAP and sort of government downsizing a little bit. Um, we, we downsized based on the need years earlier. Post-Afghanistan, some mental health injuries don't present until 6, 12, 18 months later. So there was actually greater need following Afghanistan than there was during that war. So I asked him, uh, I said, I will show you where we can close the gap and get the wait times down. And it's frustrating. I did. I settled the lawsuit. We, We got the wait times down. The wait times now are out of control. And we've got a sleepy minister who does nothing um, and there's none of the attention from the public sector unions or all the people that were calling me uh, every name under the sun. <laughs> Trudeau also, creative. Tr- I won't say the names they called me. <laughs> uh, it was the time that uh, we started saying to the family, don't look at social media. Um, and Trudeau actually reversed the settlement of the lawsuit I had and forced these veterans to go all the way to the Supreme Court and I didn't hear the same outrage 
from some of the talking heads at that. And that's, uh, I think, unfortunate because I think some groups use the veterans issue politically and then once the liberals won, forgot all about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that is a not uncommon experience um, with various, let's say, stakeholder groups across is, you what know, if Harper did this. Is well, the question yeah. people have to ask themselves a lot about this government a it, lot of the time. <laughs> it's whether or not they can fit into sort of a pre-existing narrative of that government and when the government changes their ability or their desire to link it to that narrative and to, you know, hold the government to the account the same way shifts. I, I think that's a, a and quite very frankly, real something I noticed in the advocacy space is that um, there was a less of a desire, frankly, among a lot of, I mean, this isn't really germane to veterans specifically, but in a wide variety of things where people were, you know, uh, really happy about the change of government in a, in a wide variety of, of spheres of advocacy. Uh, people, like, even if you had people who were at, you know, at an organization at a staff level and were really encountering the difficulties at a, at a granular level and we're saying like, hey this these guys aren't actually like moving very fast on this the sort of grassroots activists didn't really want to hear it and we're happy to hear that things were just improving and it, that that made it very difficult on a lot of fronts and that's not really like, specific to uh to veterans specifically but it was something i definitely noticed post 2015 where it was there was a honeymoon period like you it wasn't even sensible <laughs> the degree to which the the honeymoon mentality came in into play it was really something so no you're right I, I think one thing that we have to learn as conservatives is i don't think by the end of our time in government we communicated our intent on what we were doing well enough um and i think that's something i want to make sure we do that we say to people we're conservatives we have some ideas on how we think we need to, to help build prosperity, national unity. We have to tackle the problems of today. And we're going to try and give you more context. That's why I'd rather have a lot more debate than, than an omnibus, omnibus bill, for example, because the forces against us will imply or impugn a bunch of motives that aren't, aren't actually the case at all. Um, but we were in a hurry to be pretty, uh, you know, to deliver. Mm-hmm that we allowed some of the some of our opponents to define us in a way that wasn't true well certainly on omnibus bills specifically i think this you know this government has not been shy but using them, no that's quite a, frankly i i, and, and I they haven't gotten much heat for it i a, quote kevin oh i used to before i came later because <laughs> i can't get into this to and fro quite as much and i miss it there's so much to quote oh <laughs> i i used to quote kevin lamaru to kevin lamaru and this is an inside baseball on your podcast Oh, the people who listen to this podcast yeah, know who Kevin Lamaru is. The mouthpiece for the government, deputy house leader. He used to call omnibus bills and time allocation an assault on democracy. Now he pushes time allocation and omnibus bill. So I always say, um, I think I think what we did when we were in government, uh, we were not perfect. But man, we, we had some good success on, on the economy, on building productivity, on trade. Uh, on, you know, national unity, all the things we kind of take for granted until we see six years of Justin Trudeau screwing up the entire country. So um, I I think we have to articulate our vision a little bit better. And that's uh, something I'm going to try and do as leader. Circling back to your appointment as minister, um, you were coming in pretty fresh. And I guess you had seen to some extent, you know, how a minister's office worked from your exposure as a parliamentary secretary. But how did you sort of find that process of, of jumping into that ministerial role? 
Um, <laughs> that's a great question because even in my first discussion with the prime minister, he kind of acknowledged that you know, there's a lot of pressure here. I'm putting you in uh, to a department with a lot of challenges and, and uh, um, a lot of media perceptions. So as I said, I asked for a bit of a mandate on a few things that I was already very conversant on because, you know, look, when I left the military, went into the private sector, I started a veterans charity with some friends called the True Patriot Love Foundation. I, I, I live and believe these things. In fact, I had trouble going to sleep at night as Veterans Affairs Minister. I was trying to respond to some veterans personally on Facebook to, to fix their cases. I, I don't want to give up on anyone. Mm-hmm. And so I, I said to the, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff at the time, I said to Ray, I also want to build up a team that will meet my expectations for this file. So I want to hire some veterans. Um, I want to hire some lawyers to resolve. Uh, I, I don't didn't think the, the justice officials had, had handled the Equitas lawsuit properly. So one of my first meetings, I fired the senior justice official and bureaucrats were just like, <laughs> you can't do this. <laughs> it doesn't happen yes, very often. Monocles falling into teeth. And this yeah. is where I'm a veteran and I'm a lawyer and I've worked on class action cases. This was mismanaged. I wanted to hear why you made certain decisions. Those were insufficient. Thank you for your service. Um, and people aren't used to ministers being that direct. Sure. But I had the full support of uh, the prime minister, which made me feel confident as a young minister. But I brought in an amazing team. <clears throat> My chief of staff, who, who's with me now, was was with me, um, as were some, some veterans and, and a veteran I knew from, from my private sector law time. And that's how we made progress. Everyone was committed to, to being transparent, being professional. And we weren't there to announce things or tweet things like this liberal government is. We were there to actually achieve things. And we almost ran out of time with the election, but uh, I'm proud of the progress we made. And it was a, a mixture of some really good political folks, uh, but also some people we brought in, uh, my director of stakeholders, female veteran, a friend of mine from RMC, uh, she was amazing, a francophone. Uh, she was just elected to, to council over in, uh, in Chelsea. And so uh, uh, she came into politics to help me help veterans. And so it was, we had some outside the box thinking, and uh, I think that helped us. Because all told, you would have been there, what, was it nine months? <clears throat> nine or ten months, but yeah. that includes the election. Right, so mm-hmm. it was really like nine months. Yeah, and it was an early election. Yeah, and pre-election August. certainly is not the most productive time. Yeah. I think, as uh, as we learned uh, this year, it's. Uh, it Although I had a mandate for the budget, mm-hmm. as I said, my first meeting with Harper, I asked for runway, and um, and and to his credit, this was something that was was great about Prime Minister Harper is he knew if you knew your stuff and you could have a. Like, I was amazed at the depth of knowledge he had on a portfolio like Veterans Affairs, um, given everything that was happening. And we had a very detailed conversation, and he agreed with some of the things I, I wanted to do. Um, he had some things he wanted done as well. Um, we still had a veterans hospital in Quebec that had not been transferred. Uh, uh, St. Anne de Bellevue, the, the transfers of veterans hospitals started in the 1960s. <laughs> and so there was, some, there was one that was still... Not done. We got that done under my watch as well, and so uh, I love that fact that uh, the prime minister, unlike totally the one now, Stephen Harper had a handle on everything that was happening, and if if he agreed with your direction, he let you run with the football. Um, I don't think the current prime minister has a handle on pretty much anything, and I'm not saying that in a 
dismissive way, but we've seen it. He'll do the announcement, and he leaves it to other people to handle. I, I think he articulated as much in one of the Agacon's uh, ethics uh, <laughs> inquiries where he said, no, I'm sort of ceremonial um, in my purposes. Please please don't take anything I say too, too seriously, um, which was, that, that an, was an interesting confession. That was that was uh, an ethics report entitled Trudeau One. Yes. There's been several sequels since then. <laughs> Two uh, or three now, I yeah. think. Yeah, uh, I it, think the winner from that report still has to be the helicopter saga. I don't know if you, you I mean, you're the helicopter expert, I suppose, but it's. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you remember this. This is a, a, a deep cut off of our uh, off of our podcast, but there was an argument made by the prime minister's uh, representatives uh, to the ethics commissioner that the uh, conflict of interest act, excuse me, specifies avion. Oh which yeah, in that's their right. view no, does not count <laughs> for yeah, right. purpose of helicopter. This is a different mode avion of air transportation. Aircraft. <laughs> yeah, in this English. is a different mode. Of, yes. No. Um, it, always, always gets me. It's but the, the line, I think it was Conrad Yukabuski or someone wrote a column basically on what, what uh, Etienne's describing, which is the disconnected prime minister who views his role as ceremonial. Yeah. No, you're more like a CEO. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to not only trust your ministers, but you have to be able to dive into to the issues. Uh, we had that in spades with Stephen Harper, mm-hmm. probably someone that had probably more depth of policy knowledge than any prime minister in the modern era. Um, and if if you had built trust, and I, I had from my work on parliamentary secretary, and because I'd been doing advocacy within caucus on veterans, he, he approved my course of action, mm-hmm. said work with Joe on uh, Joe Oliver on the, the budget aspects of it. And uh, we made real progress. So I'm proud of my time there. And I'll tell you, when I go to PEI, I quietly hear from people that that work there saying we really enjoyed. Not only did you challenge us to to get the backlogs down, I, I brought veterans there to to speak to the civil service because I, I wanted them to understand the modern challenges facing veterans and their families from the Afghanistan conflict. Mm-hmm. For those unaware, PI is the home, Charlottetown is the home for the Veterans Affairs Ministry. Fairly unique um, in Ottawa is the one ministry based out of you know, not the NCC region. Yeah, and that presents challenges. You know, there is not, um, there's not a base in Prince Edward Island. There's not, and there are veterans there, but mm-hmm. it's a, it's literally an island, right? And so, <laughs> so for me, I had an office in Charlottetown and I had an office in Ottawa as minister. My deputy minister uh, went to both. He had to have a condo. And over time, that can present some cultural challenges for any organization, regardless of the issue. And what I used to say is, when there's a backlog, why I would bring veterans with me? When there's a backlog, these aren't numbers. Mm-hmm. Every single one is a family. And on, while they're waiting to get a response from Veterans Affairs, their situation is more stressful. Whenever they get a letter from Veterans Affairs, they're stressed even before they open it. Um, um, to the point that one veteran famously said, it's like I have to prove my injury all over mm-hmm. again. And, and the media, um, you know, focused on that one because it it, uh, it really upset some veterans. And so I said, every I had us rewrite every letter because everything has to be written with the perspective that it's going to arrive in the home of someone who fears that letter and mm-hmm. is dealing with issues. So we tried to make everything what we said called veteran-centric. We tried to close the gap between Department of uh, National Defense and Veterans Affairs. 
all of these things the liberals have quietly continued. Um, they now have the associate minister of national defense as the veterans minister, right? Mm-hmm. The one thing they didn't continue, and I recommended to all veterans affairs ministers after me, I offered to meet with them all. I, I recommended that all of them have a few veterans on their staff. They have failed. That's why Seamus had problems. And here's a scoop with Short Pants <laughs> Podcast. We usually try not to make news. <laughs> Do you want to know the only veterans affairs minister after me that agreed uh, to a sit down and wanted to hear my thoughts on how to just help people regardless of politics. I you think, want to guess who it was? I think I can guess. <laughs> I think it was Jody Wilson-Raybould. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> um, who, was, who wasn't in the role very long. <laughs> no, uh, indeed. But I saw in her more potential, more compassion, more integrity than all the others. Yeah, no, we, uh, we, uh, we definitely we definitely like her around these parts. Uh, I don't know if you've read her book, actually. It was very interesting. I haven't, but... Um, She's going to present me with a signed uh, copy. Oh, lovely. And what was interesting, when I met with, with Jody and we had a great discussion, it's when I really grew to respect her a great deal. We knew each other. There was respect. But I saw she cares. She's getting on top. I knew from everything she wasn't loving the shuffle. <laughs> <laughs> but when I left her office, her ministerial staff were outside in the waiting room. And when they saw me coming out of her <laughs> office... The deputy minister and all the decoms from Veterans Affairs were there going, oh my God, what just happened? <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget that day. And I have a lot of respect for her. And uh, and um, so it, it, it sort of shows ministers can, can see this as a political opportunity mm-hmm. or an opportunity to help Canadians. And the only one uh, I saw that, that saw it as a way to help veterans and their family was Jody. Yeah. So from what you've sort of described your ministerial experience, I think what I heard was that key to you of what you think makes a successful ministerial office is sort of confidence of the prime minister to say, you know, here's your file, go ahead, and you have my explicit blessing on X, Y, and Z priorities, and that you're able to sort of build your own team around those priorities. Yeah, and and you have to work with your parliamentary secretary. You have to develop good relations with your senior civil service. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate, Walt Natinchik, a former general, I knew from my... True Patriot Love, my my charitable work, he was chief of defense staff. So I was very fortunate. I had a relationship with my deputy. And I think that was also very helpful to me. And there's no greater champion for, for injured veterans from Afghanistan than, than Walt Matinjic, who viewed it as his way of helping people injured in a conflict that he was a leader mm-hmm. enduring. Uh, so that was, that was key. But I, I really think it's all about trust, professionalism, and setting out a plan and priorities. And for me... What was great, Stephen Harper would kind of, we had a, only a few meetings because he knew my direction from day one. Mm-hmm. And then we talked, I think, again about a budget and then about the resolution of the Equitas lawsuit. And there was a lot of trust from the prime minister to me and to me, to my team and department. So th- that's a good point about the department. I know on this program, we have certainly been, um, I think Etienne from his time in government learned that the you know while the folks in the civil service are subject matter experts and you know know their files really well there can be a certain degree of of inertia that sets in and certain cultural um bake in of of different you know let's say suboptimal aspects and i think you sort of touched on that in your what you discussed about you know veterans affairs not really being geared for modern conflicts and having to sort of like catch up on that did you find that that relationship was was tense in that way or did you find the department pretty receptive to sort of new thinking you're bringing in in that respect? Um, very receptive. 
Um, but there was all there was always um, there were two worries unique to my situation. There was one, the the public sector uh, union by that point was already engaged in running television ads against the Harper government on veterans issues. They actually, in some cases, flew veterans to Ottawa to get into confrontations with my predecessor. Um, I, I did, uh, did not think it was professional for the union to do that, and I mentioned that. Um, the other aspect for me, because it, is, it was the only department not headquartered in Ottawa, Veterans Affairs is the largest employer in Prince Edward Island. Mm-hmm. So there was always a fear that I was, when I was coming to the island, it was to, to close things or to hand out. And so there was a, a nervousness about the minister. And so I used to say I wanted to come and bring a veteran or, or a veteran family with me. And the neat thing about the building there, you can speak in the atrium to probably 600 people. And I did that on a few occasions. And I would bring a veteran and their family to personalize the file for them. I also flew back there after I lost. Well, I didn't lose, but our government lost. <laughs> I was criticized by a journalist for his his junket to Prince Edward Island cost this much money, and it was a yeah, October know, famously the best time to visit the island. So yeah. it's, uh... <laughs> but I went there to say continue the progress we made, and I shook everyone's hand, and some people were in tears, saying I've. You've restored my pride in working here. We we got the wait times down. You're right. I feel like we've helped families. I had a few people who said, you should run to be leader of your party. You should be prime minister. And that made me feel good because that these were people that were motivated by a minister who cared about them and were, I believe, in trying to inspire the, the team. So there is some cultural things that, that do creep into any organization, mm-hmm. but effective leadership can address that as well. Etienne, did you have a, a direction you wanted to go from there? Well, i just mindful of time because yes. time is not um, unlimited. So We can't be quite as rambly. <laughs> you can't sleep over it, Storm. As much as it's your house. Uh, I, I brought a sleeping bag just yeah, in yeah. case that offer was on the table. How uh, much Vimy did you take? <laughs> I don't have Vimy in the car, but I do have a, uh, a cookie dough stout that I was planning for games afterwards. Oh. So. Well, okay, we'll see how long. Depends what your beer tastes are. And your board game taste, for that matter. This is true. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit to sort of modern, well, the modern, modern day. Um, <laughs> Today's era. Because this isn't a look back history of Aaron no. O'Toole. It's, where is he now and where is he going? There you go. So very quickly, um, first leadership run, um, now second leadership run is the successful one. Puts you I prefer that one. <laughs> naturally. Sure. We'll, we'll skip yeah. over the first one. I'm sure there were some lessons learned that were applied to to number two, but number two, ultimately successful. But I was a listener, and you guys were okay with the first run. You thought it was pretty uh, pretty positive. I was in Sudbury uh, at a debate of, for the NDP leadership race at the time, uh, and I watched the sort of final results come in, and I was, I was watching Maxim Bernier and Andrew Shearer, uh, two guys who uh, I'm sure you'll forgive me for saying this. I, I found kind of weird, uh, <laughs> and watch. I saw you in third place, and I was like, "This guy seems pretty normal." Like I, I don't know. It's, it seems like they missed a step here. So that was that was my impression at the time. Ultimately, that that was all corrected. I, I suppose in the mm-hmm. in the most recent le- leadership. Boys in short pants bump works again. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you for that. You're bump. very welcome. <laughs> so. 
I mean, your brand in this leadership. Um, when when was the actual race? Oh, it God. was twenty twenty, I guess. Oh, September. It was a pandemic election. Yeah, it was twenty twenty. September twenty twenty. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? No, August, <laughs> August, August, August 20th, I became uh, king okay. leader, I believe. Okay. Yeah, I think all our sense of time is With a little the pandemic these days. Yeah. This, uh... yeah. Um, so, True Brew, True Blue brand. True Brew. True yeah. Brew. Also, like um, an alternative. Um, Name for the next beer, by the way, that we make. Should be True Brew. That's good. We can do we'll that. that. Yeah. We'll send you a bottle. Um, successful. Um, puts you in the big chair. Um, in the middle of a pandemic, no less, which uh, I've you know argued on the podcast before, um, you know environmentally, a uh, a pandemic is not um, you know the best for both uh, being in opposition or being uh, perhaps a conservative when people are looking towards big government in terms of you know massive government intervention. Um, so there's certainly some environmental challenges there. How was taking the role during a pandemic and getting sort of uh, you're running the leadership you. or becoming leader? Becoming leader. It was extremely hard. You know, um, you know, I love people who say, you know, he had a, le- a year to be leader. Like, uh, you know, he should have won that election. We almost did win that election. And here was my first month as leader. My first trip to Quebec, I caught COVID. <laughs> <laughs> now, thank goodness I didn't give it to Premier Legault. That would not have been a good... But his office worried for a few days. <laughs> Um, um, and so the speech from the throne after the We Charity Scandal prorogation uh, to, to cover all that stuff up, um, I wasn't in the house. And I, uh, I fortunately have a great deputy leader in, in Candace Bergen. She held, held the fort. Um, but I didn't give my first speech until I had done my quarantine. And, um, and then I had one trip after that briefly to Alberta in between kind of the, you know, before the second wave really kind of hit Mm -hmm. in Western Canada. And that was it. And I was on Zooms and I spoke to the Canadian club in Toronto. Normally the new leader goes to the Royal York and speaks to hundreds of people. I did that from this room we're sitting in now, virtually on a camera. And um, all of us were facing adversity. So I'm not complaining here, but the liberals knew and one of the many reasons he called the $600 million pandemic election was they didn't want me to get out. They wanted to define us in their terms. They wanted to spend as much money to buy as many votes as possible, including sending checks to seniors just arriving before <laughs> before election day. That was a particularly it, brazen one, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the budget lockup, we were like, wait, what? It was, it, the, you know, it was so crass. It was so deceptive. And literally, you follow this, they obfuscated, covered up, they were reading fairy tales at, uh, into the record on these virtual committees. Like it was probably the most disrespectful, cover-up prone government I've ever seen, corrupt to its core. If you look and see how they covered up even sexual misconduct allegations in the military and from liberal staffers mm-hmm. on the hill, it's pretty shameful. But they held all of this at bay took Parliament to court with the Winnipeg lab documents, all to go to the election, try and divide people on vaccines, and before Aaron O'Toole could get out there and speak to anyone. We didn't let that deter us. I did do all the Zooms. We prepared a good policy platform. We prepared to get out there. And when we did, we performed. And uh, But it was a tough year. I will, I will say to you, I'm really having my first tour as leader now. 
to be honest with you. We got mm-hmm. out a couple weeks ahead of the election and did some some tours, but I'm going to, to, to provinces that I haven't been to as leader, really, you know, out, outside of the election. Mm-hmm. So um, we all face our hurdles. I face them head on, and I do think there were some great gains. Trudeau was convinced he was going to get a majority. He did not. Um, but I don't like losing. I didn't like losing the first leadership. But the lessons I learned in the first leadership helped me win the second. And that's going to be the same thing with the election. So I think this is a good bridge to sort of this week's uh, inside the bubble um, topic of conversation, which is, um, you know, the removal of Denny's batters from the uh, conservative uh, caucus. Um, the sort national of, caucus, it must be said, because apparently there's an important distinction at work here. <laughs> um, so, sort of, wh- what's your what's your take on things right now? Um, next week is a big week. Um, there have been questions as to whether or not you know everyone is going to return in per- uh, in person. Vaccination status, all of this has sort of been thrown. Uh, as I understand from a piece earlier today, you said to coulisse de pouvoir. Um, that all uh, Conservatives MP- MPs would be showing up on Monday, if that's a correct uh, citation. Wh- what should we expect sort of in the coming weeks, both in relation to, um, you know, the Conservative perspective on the new session of Parliament, as well as in terms of caucus management? Well, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a bunch of little questions within an overall theme. I've always been straight on vaccines. You know, there is no one that is the big, bigger supporter than vaccines than me. You know, my wife and I shared our experience with COVID. Um, we shared our experience getting getting the vaccine. In fact, what was shameful and, and disappointing to me personally in the election was months ago when Rebecca and I did a drive-through clinic and tweeted out uh, us getting the vaccine, getting the jab on camera, including my wife who stepped up. Um, Trudeau retweeted that video and said, thanks for working together. We got to, you know, answer any questions. In the campaign, he was calling me an anti-vaxxer. He used that issue, and I've talked to all experts. There's always going to be people, whether it's they don't like needles or hesitant, the more you turn it into this fractious us versus them, you actually will reduce uptake with some of the hesitant. And so I've tried to always depoliticize this issue. Has it been easy uh, in an election where I had Trudeau politicizing it? I had a guy named Max Bernier doing the same thing. Um, I've had the same approach consistently. So the Conservatives have always followed the rules on the Hill all throughout the pandemic, including some of the virtual stuff that we knew Trudeau was using just to hide his own corruption. And I said months ago, we would be prepared to return following the rules um, but I don't get into talking about the personal situation of, of any of my people and that I don't talk about uh, personal health care issues on any other front. I just say get vaccinated and have your questions answered. I also want all of my caucus to have a positive approach to answering questions, not creating new ones. And so I think Miss Batters and other people have to realize that if you're going to and undermine divide the team or confuse people on an important issue like the pandemic um, you're not going to be welcome on our team and uh, she made the decision herself uh, but as leader uh, I made sure that we're focused on unity 
representing Canadians with professionalism and focused on the on the issues people want, which is answering questions, focusing on inflation, uniting the country at a time I've never seen it more divided. So was that everything answered in that uh, I'm reminded response? Well, when you uh, when you picked apart how many questions I asked, all in there that, were a few in there. I, I was reminded <laughs> of the you know the advice to journalists, which is don't ask two questions because. You know, someone will only respond to the question they want to answer. Not that I'm accusing you of having done that here. That was just for my own personal uh, feedback sake. You've been watching my press conference. (laughs) Sometimes I'll get four questions in one. uh, And I'll say, I'll note you didn't answer the question. Well, no, I did. (laughs) I took one of them. That's all I need to do. Uh, No, I I think that's um, perfectly fair. Um, the part that you didn't answer, I think, which I don't think um, you're dodging, but it's the what is sort of the approach of the Conservative caucus going into challenging and pressuring and playing that opposition role to the government in the ne- in the coming months? Are you focused on pandemic economy? Um, wh- which are the issues that are the priority issues for the Conservative caucus with this return to session? Three priorities: economy, economy, economy. <laughs> And I'm not kidding, because the economy has multiple aspects. The inflation crisis we're facing right now is real. We've been talking about it. My final speech of the last parliament to caucus, which we let the, the media into, I said two things. We're facing an inflation crisis, and we should respectfully put our flags back up. I said that in June. Uh, it still wasn't done until recently. And Pierre Pauly has been, has been talking about uh, inflation for over a year. And everything we've been warning about is coming to pass. There's also U.S. protectionism. We see this mandate on electric vehicles. We see Line 5 softwood lumber tariffs doubling. We've never seen worse Canada-U.S. relations. And Trudeau now can't blame the previous administration. He's now had failures under three presidents. The problem is just Trudeau. It's not the United States. He's not punching through. He's not representing our interests. And there's a labor shortage across the country, particularly acute in Quebec, but particularly acute in many sectors because the CERB went on too long. What we should have done is focused aid specifically to the businesses and people that needed it, but not a blanket for students and everyone under the sun. And we were always saying that, but the Trudeau government didn't want to make any serious decision until after the election. And that made the labor market challenges more difficult. So economy will be key. National unity is related, especially natural resources and and environment. The the Trudeau choices for those cabinet positions is just inflaming concerns in Western Canada about being basically shut out of Canadian prosperity. And that goes into strong communities. We need people to have employment. We need people to... um, to see a strong Canada and a strong future in front of them. And the pandemic has made the frustrations that were already there more acute. And so that's why I want conservatives not just to talk about the economy, talk about unity. We need to show ourselves as professional, uh, positive, inspiring Canada to be better and show we're ready to govern. And that's why I don't want us having these ridiculous little um you know, episodes like we've seen. Um, We need to have great debates in our caucus, as we used to when I was in government with Stephen Harper, and then come out and execute. That's what we need to do as opposition. I'll ask you uh, one one sort of uh, 
broad one and a couple couple slightly slightly more adversarial <laughs> policy ones. You're, just you're learning picking from up my... some stuff you've you've picked up here. Uh, the first is just I and I know that the primary job of, of the leader opposition is to become prime minister, and I you know I, I recognize that. And setting that aside, um, what have you sort of learned as leader of the opposition and how to? Because I worked in opposition for for four years, it was certainly a an interesting ride, and I learned a lot of, about how to do it reasonably effectively, uh, considering. Uh, but what did you learn about, about how to be an effective opposition leader uh, short of uh, running to be prime minister? Because I, I understand that that's the goal. <laughs> so I, I get that that's the, the starting point. But sort of uh, what what did you find like cuts through and, and in terms of like keeping your caucus focused? Because I find that it can be tough sometimes if you're not in government, uh, people will sort of rabbit off in various directions and it's, it's hard to corral them. Rabbit off in different directions. <laughs> uh, that never happens. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, uh, Laurent, at all. No, I think one issue I've been talking to my team about, uh, and look, I'm as I, we talked about earlier, I, I was in the backbench. I was a newbie. Yeah. Uh, I worked my way up. I always respected and learned from other members of the team. And I love that we used to have raucous caucus meetings with Stephen Harper. And we'd walk out and we'd be colleagues and we'd have each other's back and we'd execute but if you had frustrations, you talked about it in that room, not outside. We have be, be, been developing a bit of an opposition mentality and not having the discipline mm-hmm. required to be government. Um, I know the most divided caucus right now in Ottawa is Justin Trudeau's who, oh yeah, we better meet before Parliament returns. <laughs> this pivotal once in a century election. I don't even want to meet my new MPs or my old MPs. Like Justin Trudeau doesn't care what most MPs think. Um, they're the most divided, but they're silent. Mm-hmm. They don't come out and tweet at each other or things like this. So we we have to make sure that we can show we're ready for prime time. And some of that means how we, how we perform. Um, what I learned as opposition leader is Canadians want us to oppose, hold to account, do all that sort of stuff. And it was tough during a virtual parliament. Mm-hmm. Some days only Mark, only Mark Garretson would be there. And if, if Mark Garretson went to the washroom, there would not be a single liberal in the house. Mm-hmm. The NDP was there. The bloc was there. We were there in reduced numbers. I thought it was a complete lack of respect for our democracy. And some of the ministers would be calling in on Zoom from their ministerial buildings here. Mm-hmm. You couldn't come to the Hill, wear your mask, and be accountable. But I've learned we can't just howl at the moon at Justin Trudeau. We also have to propose. So what I've said is I want to oppose and propose. So you're going to see over the year I was leader, I wasn't even leader a full year before the election. We developed policy and we reached out and we learned. We developed policy on mental health and addiction, on the economy, on immigration and speeding up processes for family reunification, for the labor shortages, credential recognition. So now that we've done that, I want to make sure to Canadians that we're not just Justin Trudeau, bad, bad, bad. <laughs> you know, we have to say this government is tired. It's it's failing on the U.S. relationship, failing on inflation. And here's what we think we can do to get the country back on track. Here's what we can do to actually reduce emissions without firing tens of thousands of people just for some ideological reason. Um, it, it's harder to both oppose and propose, but that's what where we need the discipline of being mm-hmm. ready to govern. Is it's easy to 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 oppose, 
And it also hurts our brand. If we're always opposing, we always seem negative. I want us to inspire. I'm in politics because I love the country and that has to come through in what we do. Mm-hmm. Let me pick up on just that, that proposed point. Um, coming from Alberta, you know, a, a perennial debate there is shadow budgets, whether or not the opposition is responsible for proposing a shadow budget, right? <laughs> um, not, not that I'm suggesting as much, but the, you know, the pushback tends to be that the opposition is not well equipped. And, and um, having worked in opposition, I can certainly <laughs> testify that I, were I asked to produce a shadow budget, I would struggle. <laughs> to propose in a meaningful sense, you do not have you know, one one thousandths the resources of government when it comes to some of these files and some of these issues. And so the the actual policy apparatus of the opposition, as I'm sure you know, um, is fairly limited. Um, And so is it a strain on resources to do that proposing? You know, how do you work um, within the tools you have? Is it by focusing on singular issues and putting resources into making proposals on those issues? Or how do you approach proposing when opposition resources are so strained? So when do you start in my office <laughs> running up the shadow budget initiative? I, I like this. Uh, we'll, we'll take this offline. Uh, no, he, here's where uh, my high school motto was non-quantum said qual. Not quantity, but quality. Kelly McCauley, our new shadow minister for, for the Treasury Board, exposed an error in Bill Morneau's last budget. Kelly is tenacious and he had a team of two people. How many staffers, direct political staffers in finance and then the department missed the the financial error? Um, what we have to do is, is do that scrutiny and do that contrast and challenge to what they're proposing. But I hear you. I don't, I don't think you know, the, the attention of the country and, and news world and everyone will tune in. Aaron O'Toole's presenting the shadow budget. But what they may do is when we have a proposal and we have it costed by the PBO, we can do that. So our platform, you saw how <clears throat> we launched our platform, Canada's recovery plan, <laughs> which we should still use because it's it resonated well. We uh, submitted all of it to the PBO when we finalized it just before the election. We had to wait for that run through. So we have costing now, and we put that out. Um, the, the policy was so well received that after two weeks, the media were saying, where are the numbers? Where are the numbers? Well, we submitted more to the PBO for the new budget review that is, is mandated than the sitting government. They only ran, I think, eight things by the PBO. We had as many as 20 or 30 major initiatives because uh, we were running a very comprehensive but costed platform. Now we're going to do a bit more of that. So I don't think the shadow budget per se, but we do have some initiatives from our recovery plan that we want to continue to advocate for. You may see that appear in some PMBs and oppo motion days. Um, And now that we have our general direction from our party convention that we had in March, uh, our, our outreach to our MPs, our platform development, if we need to tweak them, we can just go back to the PBO and say, how does this change the forecast? So I agree in that shadow budgeting to a degree. But now that we have a year under our belt, the pandemic's ending, you're going to see me doing more on the proposing side, but also doing more roundtables. You know, in, in Victoria, uh, I was there just as the flooding was hitting in BC. It's horrible to see, uh, see that tragedy. I was the first speaker 
at the Victoria Chamber of Commerce in 18 months. They just had an AGM a while ago. They hadn't had a speaker. Um, I was pleased to be there. It went very well. I'm going to be now doing things that I haven't been able to do, and we're going to equip that with some detail on, on policy and on budget. I want to just talk about, uh, you brought up a couple of things on the economy earlier, and uh, this is one of, one of two, so we'll uh, we'll fit it, wrap this up, and I think we'll, we'll be good, just mindful of time. Um, on the economy, I think you, you raised, you know, the labor shortage thing and inflation. I think those are, you know, obviously connected issues as you, you look at an economy. In a global economy where you have supply chain issues sort of down, down the stream to the source, like really everywhere, um, and it's hard to sort of isolate you know, Canadian inflation from that sort of general phenomenon. But on the on some of the labor Well, let shortages, me hit pause there. Go ahead. If you don't mind. Please. The U.S. has inflation. Yes. But they have GDP growth at 6.5%. Mm-hmm. We don't. The right. last Q2, we actually had a shrinking GDP. So we're the only G7 country that has major inflation and no matching economic growth as a result. We also spent more than any G7 country on a per capita basis. And we're, see, we're seeing the worst outcomes. And on the supply chain, I agree, there's elements of this supply chain crisis that, uh, that are ripple effects across, mm-hmm. you know, trading democracies and all these sorts of things. But what worries me, um, we see us not even at the table with the U.S. for semiconductor and, and other critical part shortages. We are integrated. We have been really since the 1960s with the Auto Pact. And I don't see that degree of connection with the U.S. economy which means the U.S. is tackling their supply chain shortage and we're going to wait until everyone else sorts things out and then try and insert ourselves. We should be at the table with them. Yeah. Uh, on the, the, and that's a fair point. On the labor shortage point, I think, uh, you know, you mentioned the CERB and, I, you know, let's, let's fold the CRB into that uh, just because there's been... Yeah. yeah. I, yeah they're, they're, <laughs> I, I know you're one in the same. People, but yeah. Sorry, yeah, that's fine. Uh I think what some people pointed out is that, you know, we had an extremely globally slow economic recovery after the 2008 crisis, and that led to a kind of historically slack labor market for, you know, the better part of a generation. Um, And now we're seeing a tighter one, and at the same time seeing a labor shortage, uh, for for lack of a better term. And, you know, people on my side of the spectrum would say, well, what you have here is a tight labor market and a a wage shortage, uh, where businesses are simply not paying what reflect like wages that reflect the prevailing market conditions in a tighter labor market is is that something you have considered or is it because i obviously you know small business fantastic do a lot of good work but there is obviously a lot of stickiness in terms of how they budget well look i i I said two things that we wanted to run on uh secure the future canada's recovery we wanted to increase jobs in all regions all sectors and i would always say an upward pressure on wages um as as you know we're reaching out to labor unions and to working canadians because respectfully we don't think the ndp have been uh representing them well and you know when some ndp mps are supporting shutdown canada movements you know who that hurts the most is just-in-time manufacturing operations in, in Hamilton and Windsor and Northern Ontario. Um, so we're going to try and make sure that we see that upward pressure on wages. I like to see people paid a wage that, that they can live and, and provide for their family and have some degree of security. I've talked about my own experience growing up in a GM family with great respect for that role union can play in making sure that, that their members 
not only have work, but, but are paid fairly uh, in, a, in a fair manner. So that will be part of what we're, we're talking about. This is where, before the pandemic started, just before, I actually proposed uh, getting uh, our EI and, and sick time system ready so that we could have some degree of managing what was a work shortage. I talked about standing up the military. I said we needed to take a warlike footing. And I was mocked for that. And three months later, this was during the leadership, and I remember CP wrote an article from Aaron O'Toole's you know, leader, conservative leadership. Look, they're saying so we need a war footing for this COVID thing. A few months later, Trudeau was calling in the military. Mm-hmm. I think if we prepared our system with appropriate sick leave for the urgency of this situation and prepared EI, extended it to self-employed, we could have actually had a degree of control. Uh, we're now seeing... Um, reports of fraud at, at huge levels. Uh, students never should have been put on the CERB. Um, that hurt a lot of service and, and seasonal and other things that really required that that entry level or student student labor. So there was a lot of things that were done wrong, and I think we could have done better. And I wasn't just piping. I sent notes and, and spoke to Morneau personally in the pandemic. I put my leadership on hold because I wanted to put the interests of the country first. We all thought we were falling off the cliff the first wave of the pandemic. Right? <laughs> it was, uh, it so, was a great time. So um, I think we have to learn those lessons. And uh, But I do want to see people paid fairly. And this is the problem with inflation, uh, Laurel, is you know, we, we're now at 4.7%. And over the last year, wages have grown by about 2.2%. So people are could say getting a pay cut mm-hmm. or their 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 bills aren't going as far because that's out of that delta is concerning my worry is only going to get worse and will it catch up we don't have the 6.5 percent annualized growth the u.s is having we're flat and now they're talking about shutting down the energy sector or capping or stopping or not encouraging more investment that's not the answer the answer is getting emissions down getting employment up sure uh, the the other one I want to ask you about is uh, on sort of reconciliation indigenous issues. Um, recognizing first of all, leaving aside the flag thing, I, I think you know people who I think I've mentioned this on the show. I think what Trudeau did in general with that was very cynical, um, mm. and I, I really had no time for it. It's if that's the only thing you're going to do, then you might as well not do it. Um, but I think one thing I saw, like I read the conservative platform when it came out and there was a lot in there that I thought was, was impressive and people who listen to the show will, will recall me talking about that. One thing I was, I was pretty disappointed by, uh, was the, the sort of platform on indigenous issues. I thought reading it, the, you know, and there were, there were good elements in there, but I think the overall thrust of it that I sort of took away was that the the indigenous right that mattered was the right to say yes to energy projects, right? That there wasn't a look at, at education and housing and or health to the degree that there, there should have been, recognizing that that has been, you know, a national disgrace for generations. And I, I would hope to hear you talk a little bit about what the Conservative Party is going to do better in the future on that issue. Well, thank you for the positive comments. And let me <laughs> challenge you on the minor negative one. Fair enough. My first question when I rose in the House finally after covid was my first question was on indigenous health outcomes and a call to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commode. Uh, obviously, that week was when we first learned of the horrible, horrible Joyce Eshaquan case. And I do think 
Um, the federal government of all stripes have failed here. I've said that many times. And when I when I asked that question later in the day, Trudeau kind of, oh, isn't it nice that conservatives are now talking about reconciliation? He was so condescending. No party has has a, has a record they can be proud of here. Um, and the conversations have to be done respectfully and seriously. But we also had a for Indigenous, by Indigenous housing policy in mm-hmm. the platform. So we did have, and that was directly from some of the outreach RMP Brad Viss did with Indigenous uh, advocates. We, we certainly are focused on economic reconciliation as much as anything else because we, I've, and I've said this on the campaign trail, I would like to see the next intergenerational transfer for Indigenous peoples to be wealth, not trauma. Mm-hmm. And we're now at a point that um, there's moves afoot to have a more enhanced indigenous supply chain for all sectors, but including energy. Suncor spends about $900 million per year on indigenous-led supply chain companies. So when you cancel Northern Gateway or you talk about transitioning or capping, I think there should be a duty to consult there. Um Certainly, he failed on the duty to consult in the in the in the Northern Gateway project, which was one third equity owned by Indigenous uh, uh, groups along the along the route. So, obviously, we're the free market, we're the we're the economic focus party. So, you're going to see a lot of focus on that with within the context of reconciliation. But we we committed a billion dollars for Indigenous-led mental health and addictions in the campaign. It would have been the largest investment specific in Indigenous healthcare in Canadian history. And I've had people since say, your your policy on that and on addictions in general had me vote Conservative for the first time in my life. So that means we are resonating. I, I think if the campaign wasn't on COVID, people would have looked at our positions on reconciliation, on environment and other things a little more closely. But there's more work we need to do to to, to win trust. Um, but I'll tell you, uh, our our caucus, Gary Vidal, Jamie Schmail, uh, our shadow ministers do amazing work, and I've enjoyed my my uh, all the indigenous leaders I've met. I have a special advisor on the United Nations Declaration. Um, no, I did not go to Tofino. Uh, I was in Ottawa and I was at the flame. Um, both the night before the reception and during the day, speaking to survivors and other people. Um, I think this is something where Justin Trudeau cares. I've always said he cares. But when you make promises with no plan to live up to them, that's setting back reconciliation. It's not advancing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm told we are we are nearing the end of our time. Aaron, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And uh, as always, the listeners, I would uh, encourage you to review on itunes aaron have you rated and reviewed us on itunes oh no <laughs> put you on the spot here as a listener i, I uh, i'm a long time listener first time caller uh, <laughs> no i appreciate what you guys do uh, i appreciate all the short pants in my office you know the uh politicians are fortunate we have great men and women that come from all backgrounds all across the country to help us in what we do and your podcast gives a bit of insight it isn't hyper-partisan, and it also allows for a much more detailed and, and serious discussion that you don't get in uh, in the cut and thrust of scrums and other things. So it's been great to appear, and I will go out and rate 
especially after that amazing. <laughs> Once they hit episode 118, they were really hitting their stride. There you uh, go. And then I'll say I'll give them a top top rating. Thank I encourage for, everyone to do that. Yeah, that I would be perfect. Thank you for completely repeating the the sort of brand identity statement. Uh, like <laughs> yes. 100% on note. That was incredible. Thank you. <laughs> well, and you have to have Wayne. You should have Wayne Easter on now. Oh, we would he, love to have. I'll, Wayne. I'll, <laughs> next I'll, when, next time I talk to Wayne, I'll say you got to go on the short. Please do. Spot. I have no it. idea whether or not he's he's aware of us. <laughs> using him, uh, his, his clip from Parliament as the intro, but I'm sure one day he'll find out. He'll ask for a royalty. Absolutely. <laughs> well, anyway, Aaron, thank you so much. Much appreciated. Thank you.